good to see everybody. My name is Ben. Thank you guys for coming and being with us. I'm, I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, I've got a couple of things I want to talk with you guys about before we jump into what's a really uplifting story. Man gets his head cut off. Sounds like Lord of the Rings. So you're welcome, Lord of the Rings fans. Um, hey, if you have teenagers uh, in the room, uh, listen to me real quick. Parents of teens, if you like working with teenagers as well, um, if you happen to be a teenager, um, you guys are faced with um, parents. You're faced with some of the hardest questions in the world to try and answer right now. I'm sure your, your teenagers are asking you all kinds of stuff. It is your job as, if you're a, a Christian, it is your job as a parent to disciple your kids. It's our job to come alongside you and help in any way we can. And so what we're doing right now with our teenagers, uh, with our students on Wednesday nights, is we're, we're going through a book called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And some of these questions are this. Ha- hasn't science disproved Christianity? Why can't we just agree that love is love? Who cares if you're a boy or a girl? Does God care when we hurt? How can you believe in heaven and hell? How can I live my best life now? Isn't Christianity against diversity? Can Jesus be true for you but not for me? Questions that you guys are facing right now, really hard, really complex questions. I wanna personally invite you and I wanna invite your teenagers to come. They might have never been to our youth ministry, they might have never been downstairs on Wednesday nights, Um, but if they haven't, now is the time to come. And we're going through this book together. We wanna help you disciple your teenagers, okay? We don't want you to be out on an island trying to answer these questions by yourself, although I'm sure you are qualified for that, but let us come alongside you and help you. That's on Wednesday nights. Please come and let's answer these questions together. And finally, last thing is this, is um, I want you to know, many of you saw this this week. We, we put out a video just to let everyone know, hey, we're not blind to, we're not deaf to the reality of COVID, the reality of spikes in numbers right now. We are paying attention to that for sure. Uh, we've added a few extra protocols and cleaning. We've always been a really clean uh, church. We sanitize before serving um, communion. And then also uh, we're now doing just temperature checks for staff. We're sanitizing his staff. Our, our, our kids uh, team is doing that as well. Okay, I wanna say all of that, just, just know we're, we're paying attention. It matters to us. It's real, man, we, we love um, we love our, our medical staff here. We serve the hospital um, as often as we possibly can, so we are paying attention. The other thing is this. This is not the first time in the history of the church that there was um, cause for disunity. COVID is not the first time in the history of the church that there was an opportunity for disunity. It's at least the thousandth, probably the millionth, and probably more than that. Two things I want to say. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Neither will the gates of mass, neither will the gates of COVID, neither will the gates of anything else. Jesus is not worried. He's not having panic attacks at the right hand of God the Father right now, worried about whether or not the church is going to push past this moment. It absolutely will. It will. So let's be confident in that. The other thing is, what is our job in the middle of this? We have in this church... Multiple ideals, multiple uh, opinions about masks, vaccines, non whatever. There are all kinds of opinions about that. 
Here's what we will not do in this church. We will not live outside of the unity and the bond of peace. We're not going to live outside of that. Romans 12 says, so long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So whatever your opinion is, whatever your hot take is, or whatever it is, let's do what the church has done for ever. And it's your opinions and my opinions come under the same banner. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus. We worship him together. Okay? Amen to that? Amen. All right. Let's jump into this light story. Mark 6. So far in Mark, if you're new to uh, Frontline, we've been teaching through this gospel of Mark. It's a book of the Bible that is written to, as a letter, written to um, first century Christians in persecuted Rome. They were meeting in the graveyards, in the catacombs because they were going to lose their life. Uh, Today, there are Afghanistan Christians who are doing the same thing. They're meeting underground because they might lose their life. John the Baptist loses his life because of the gospel. So far, the story of Jesus has been a continual momentum towards this one truth. Jesus is not just your friend. Jesus is not just a really good teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's more than that. Jesus is actually Lord over all creation. He is Lord over the sea. He calms the seas, Lord over nature. He has authority over disease. He heals the woman with the blood disorder. He has authority over demons. He cast out demons from the demoniac. He even has authority over death. He raises up the little girl in Mark 5. Jesus is more than a teacher. He's Lord. Along with the Father and the Spirit, he makes up the triune God, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Mark has just been chronicling his life at a fast pace, man. Jesus calms the storm. He immediately, it's like Mark gives you the impression that these things happen within minutes of each other and they didn't. They were days, sometimes months, sometimes a year maybe. He calms the storm, gets on the shore after calming the storm. I mean, he says, peace be still, the waves go down. He comes on the shore, the demoniac comes out. This man's been cast out, bound by chains. He delivers him, releases him, he's free. Then immediately, Jesus goes, and in the synagogue, there's a man named Jairus that, that comes to him and says, can you heal my daughter? And, and he's on the way to heal the daughter, and another woman who has a blood disorder for 12 years and has lost all her money touches his robe. She gets healed. The daughter dies. Jesus goes into the room. Talitha Kumi says, come, little girl, rise and walk. Then immediately, I mean, this word immediately is like tens and tens and tens and twenties of times in Mark immediately he goes from there, goes into the synagogue of his hometown. God Almighty, the man who wrote the book, is preaching to his hometown church. And they don't listen. They treat Jesus like he's just a familiar dude that just grew up down the street and helped build houses. Didn't we know his family? Didn't we know his mom? Didn't we know his brothers and sisters? 
And Jesus, that's when Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. After that, Jesus sends out the disciples. They go out with his authority. They're blessed in Jesus' name. They cast out demons. They do all the stuff that he could do. They come back and we're like, man, even the demons are subject to your name. And then, it's one thing after another, several chapters. Jesus is doing all this crazy stuff. It's amazing. And then, all of a sudden, here comes this story out of nowhere that has no on-ramp, no off-ramp, Mark is like a terrible director. If this is a movie, this would be a really bad director move. I mean, there, you don't even get a warning that this is coming. And what it made me think about was, some of y'all probably didn't experience this. Did you ever experience the mom or grandma safety belt arm? You just be in the passenger seat, seven, eight years old. Grandma's in the driver's seat cruising. You're looking ahead, man, nothing's going on. I remember these, I probably had 10 of these moments, distinctly. There is nothing, it's, the road's clear. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. There's only 2,000 people in the whole freaking town. Everybody drives slow anyway. Just cruising, man. She's fine, you're fine. And just out of no, no cars, nothing. There won't be nothing going on, there's no tank. I mean, you thought there'd been a tank coming just head on at us. She just swings the arm and pins you to the seat just because, just because she thought maybe somebody crazy was out there. And that's what my grandpa always said, man. He goes, you know, he's like, I'm not worried about me. He said, it's everybody else that's crazy out there driving. My grandma took him to heart, pin you to the seat just like, grandma, there is not, we are the only person on the road. Cat walks by the front of the car, man, you're only going 20 miles an hour anyway, Pin you to the seat. Have to go get checked out for whiplash just from that. That's what this feels like to me. That's what this feels like to me. This feels like just you're cruising, man, it's good. Everything's good. Looking down the street. Everything's, Jesus is moving right along. And then pause in the story. Takes you back. Wait a minute. A guy gets his head cut off. Hold up, hold up. This is, I like Jesus now. I mean, I like what he's doing. I like the stuff that he's doing, but... What in the world? His head was chopped off. What's the point? What's the point in this? Mark keeps pointing to Jesus being more than a teacher, which means that he inevitably would require more than a teacher would. We learned, okay, Jesus is king. I, I think I believe that. Or I'm just watching Jesus, and out of nowhere, it's like a man gets his head chopped off because he believed that Jesus was more than a teacher. It's time to get real with Jesus' life and his claims. To follow Jesus means nothing less than your whole life. Every bit of it. To follow Jesus means denying yourself, laying down your life. I love how Jesus describes this. In Mark 8, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? We have in this story two men. We have a king called Herod. We have a crazy person called John. Herod lives in a palace. Herod has all the money, security, people, everything he could ever want. Herod has spirituality. John dresses in camel hair. Who knows when, what his hair, I'm sure it looked gnarly. I don't even know if he ever took a bath. This dude's eating locusts and honey. And he's telling everybody around him, you've gotten it wrong. You need to repent and trust Jesus. Two men, Herod, his life, so much, so much power, so much authority, sexual pleasure, impulse. Herod is only really primarily concerned with his constituents' opinion of him. And John, nothing, none of that. Celibate man, never married, dies in his early 30s. John is only primarily concerned with God's opinion. I don't think we want to be like Herod. Volatile, hot-tempered, narcissistic, playboy, pleasure. I don't think we want to be like Herod. Takes his brother's wife. His stepdaughter performs a gross sexual dance in front of him and all of his commanders. I don't think we want to be like Herod, do we? I also think sometimes we don't want to be like John. It's a man who laid down his life and lost his life for the sake of the gospel. If this life is the end of it all, if when you die, there's nothing after that, then Herod's the life that you want. Spend it, man. Spend it up. Do you. Be you. Don't let anybody tell you different. Go get yours, man. That old phrase like, get all the money you can, can all the money you get, put a lid on the can and sit on the can. Just have your stuff. Sleep with whoever, do whatever. Don't let anybody tell you anything otherwise. If this life when you die, which you, you will die, if when you die, that's it, you, Herod sounds like a pretty good life. But if, there's, if this is not it, then John, there's something there. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, meaning if there's nothing after this, then the Christian is most of all to be pitied. But if there is something after it, it's worth giving your life for. So we're going to look at two men today, Herod and John the Baptist. Let's jump in. You can have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6. We'll be um, halfway through it there. And we'll start in verse 14. Things I want you to see about Herod and John. Two things each. Herod first is this. He's spiritual, but he's not repentant. 
He's spiritual but not repentant. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So, Director Mark has given us a story. Herod has heard of Jesus and heard of his works. And he's intrigued by Jesus, but he immediately, because he is spiritual, he immediately says, okay, John the Baptist is the one I killed earlier, and he's the one that's been raised. Herod has thought towards spiritual things. Herod would probably have called himself a spiritual man. I mean, just the fact that he believed that someone could be raised from the dead means that he's somewhat spiritual. But his spirituality is empty, which, by the way, is very appropriate for our world today. Designer spirituality. People will say, I'm a spiritual person. People will say, I believe in spiritual things. I live a spiritual life. I believe in certain things. And they say all of that, and it just becomes this like, this sort of spiritual conquest of give me all the spiritual stuff. I'll add that to my resume. I'll add that to my repertoire. But nobody ever repents. That's what the call to Jesus is. It's not just spirituality. And I think in this part of the world, we have that to worry about. I think particularly in the Midwest, it's not just some sort of random spirituality. We can actually go to church. We can actually be involved in church. You can actually call yourself a Christian, but it only to be cheap Christian spirituality. Because if you're not willing to lay down your life, then that's not Christianity at all. If you're not willing to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? And tell me where to go and tell me where to live and tell me who to marry and tell me how to treat my husband and tell me how to treat my wife. And, and at every turn of your life, just go, man, Lord, I belong to you. What do you want out of my life? Then what we have is just Midwestern Bible Belt Christian spirituality. It's designer spirituality. It's I'm spiritual, you're spiritual, we're all spiritual. But now, John the Baptist is like, people are getting their, losing their lives for Jesus. That's like, oh man, I didn't sign up for that. I thought being spiritual would look good on my Instagram bio. <laughs> it's more, man. It's more. He requires more. I can't, there's no other way around it. If any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does it profit a man that he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Herod was spiritual and not repentant. To be simply spiritual is a fad. It's just another thing to add to your identity. Herod experienced some fear, a 
about John, worried about him, but he didn't experience conviction. He'd heard about Jesus' miracles and believed John the Baptist to be a holy man, but that's where it stopped for him. No deeper questions, no possibility of belief. He wasn't ready to lay down his life. It was just pseudo-spiritual thinking. Second thing I want you to see, other than he was spiritual but not repentant, is this. His freedom is actually bondage. Now listen to this scene. This is a gross scene. Don't just let it be a story that you hear. I mean, just imagine, get inside the scene. You've got Herod, who's stolen his brother's wife. He has a stepdaughter. In the court, they would have commanders and all kinds of people, like tens of twenties of hundreds of people around. And they would have someone come in, a young girl, and perform a sexual dance. It was never royalty. It would be below royalty to ever do that. And here we have not only royalty performing the dance, but the king's stepdaughter. This is gross. But just imagine the scene with people going, oh my gosh, this is the king's stepdaughter. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias, that's Herod's wife, daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Man, that is a lot. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And he said, and she said, she hated John the Baptist, her mom, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist and then added on a platter. This is a dark scene. These are dark people. Even this little girl added evil on top of evil. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. He has the thing that most people want, Herod does. He has freedom to make his own choices. He has freedom. He's autonomous. He has freedom to have power and wealth and make any sort of impulsive sexual decisions he wants. He's got all kinds of freedom, which is what everybody in the whole world wants today. Freedom, autonomy, let me be me. Don't, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. He's free to steal his brother's wife, but he's bound by the consequences. He's free to make an oath in a gross, perverse, um, sexually abusive moment but he's bound by the consequences of the vow. Herod is loaded with everything he could ever want and everything that seems so enticing on earth. Money, power, sex, authority, autonomies. But he's bound by the traps that come with it. He has probably crippling fear of losing it. Fear and anxiety of people not approving. I mean, this says to us, because of his oaths and his guests. This man is addicted to approval. He's addicted to approval of his guests. He's addicted to the approval of his commanders. Imagine the anxiety he lives in 
just wondering what's going to happen to his power and his authority if people don't approve of him. He has the fear and anxiety of not having freedom of self. His autonomy is bondage. And late at night, alone in his thoughts, alone in his fear, I mean, what did he think? What are people saying about me? Will I have enough money to continue to be happy? Will I keep getting money? What if I lose control over my life or my kids? What if I lose my position and palace? And what if I die? That kind of anxiety is crippling. It's all an illusion, man. The very things that seem like freedom actually only end up binding him and binding us up more. Freedom. This kind of freedom, this kind of like self-actualizing freedom, it's just bondage. You didn't create yourself. You cannot possibly know how you're supposed to work. The freedom that you want, that you think that you need, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, which is the great lie, which is when Adam and Eve ate the apple and Adam threw his wife under the bus, sin entered the world. That lie that snatched them up, that grabbed them, was you can be as God. You can know what he knows. You can do what he does. What does it profit a man that he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And I look at Herod's life and so much freedom and power and man could buy anything and be anything and have anyone or have anything at the drop of a hat. And then what happens in the end of his life? You know what happened to Herod's life? He died. And I don't know any... King Herod historians today. If there's any in the room, please let me know because I, that would be incredible. I don't know anybody that's an expert on King Herod's specific kingdom, but I doubt there's anybody within a 100 to 200 mile radius. Herod's life, power, sex, everything you wanted, nothing to show for it. He died. And so did his kingdom. It's in ruins today. That's the life we want. <laughs> and then there's John. John the Baptist. Totally different, totally weird, totally countercultural. And here's what John did. First, he obeyed God's word at all costs. And it did cost him. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, John is a man of conviction. He looks at Herod's word and looks at God's word. And John, a long time ago, decided I'm going to obey God's word. And even if it means me standing in the face of a king and calling out sexual sin, I'm going to do it. Because I'm obedient to God. And God is way more fearful, righteously fearful, than King Herod. King Herod didn't create the heavens and the earth. 
King Herod doesn't have the power over death and disease. King Herod is an impulsive buffoon. Of course, I'm going to follow God's word. That's what John the Baptist decided. And when it came to sexual sin, he did not hesitate to go even up to the king. He didn't hesitate to go, I don't care what it looks like, who around me is saying it's okay. I don't care. The whole world says, man, it's your body. It's their body. You guys make decisions. Do what you want. Enjoy each other's body. Doesn't matter if you're married. Doesn't matter whatever. And that's when we get into this moment where we start having the benefits of the covenant without actually being in covenant with each other. It's that. It's pornography, man. It's, it's all kinds of things. And listen, our world is surrounded by lust all the time, constantly. And I'm not up here talking as a man who like has figured out how to corner the market and never have any sort of lust issues ever again. That's not me. That's not you either. We are surrounded by it. And what John the Baptist does is what we have to do. We have to say, God, what do you say about sex? What do you say about sexual sin? What do you say about our bodies? God made your body, man. God invented sex. He's not opposed to it at all. He created it. Under his governance, sex is a beautiful, godly thing in the covenant of marriage. John did not hesitate to say, this sexual sin is wrong, king. Let's not hesitate to say it in our own life. John's conclusion was this, God is all-powerful, Herod is not. God is the maker of heaven and earth. Herod was born and will die. God gives life. Herod takes it. God's the creator of people and sex. Herod is an abuser of people and sex. This is a no-brainer. Trust God. Fear the Lord. Don't feel fear Herod. John was doing something really uh, countercultural. John was never married. He was celibate his whole life, died a virgin in his early 30s. Totally countercultural. He devoted his obedience and worldview to be shaped by Yahweh, by God, the all-powerful maker of heaven, earth, and the human body. He submits to God, not Herod. Obey God's word. And the second is this. This is the reality. Hear me out. I mean, Everybody's got their idea of what a good life is. And when we got Herod who has all this stuff that seems so shiny, and John who lived in the wilderness off the grid, never cut his hair, he was a nasty dude. The good life to us, it starts, man, it's like the kingdom of God gets so backwards. It gets so different then it's upside down. It's stuff that feels like would be the good life is actually leads to death. And then to follow Jesus, which means to deny yourself and die to yourself, actually leads to life. That's like real, that's a real, beautiful, godly, good life. John's life was beautiful and it meant something. 
I want you to hear how Jesus, um, who, along with the Father and the Spirit, formed every human in their mother's womb, I want you to hear how Jesus describes John the Baptist. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, concerning John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? (laughs) Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and before your face? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. And Jesus says about his cousin John, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Beautiful, man. Son of the living God saying, John the Baptist lived a beautiful life. Nobody born has ever lived a more beautiful life than John. It's amazing to contrast these two men, Herod and John. John's life would seem like a failure to Herod and a failure to all of our cultural idols today. John looks like he failed miserably. He never got married, never had kids, never had sex. I mean, for a lot of people in the world, and maybe even in this room, that seems preposterous. How could you never have sex? How could you never be married? Also, he never had power, never had much pleasure, failure. He was not comfortable, he didn't have money, he failed. He had no success, no career achievement, failure. It's interesting that all those things then that John didn't have are the same things that we're after now. It's the same, man. There's nothing new. John's life was Beautiful, it was prophetic, it was obedient. And that's what it means to follow Jesus, to deny ourselves and to deny our desires. Repent and obey. That's the life of the Christian. Repent, obey, and then you do that imperfectly the rest of your life. You trust Jesus, you say, God, I want to want you, I wanna trust you, and then you go, you know what, I I don't have to, know everything in order to say, I just trust Jesus. That's, and then you do that imperfectly your whole life. You fight for faith. You don't leave your doubts at the door. We don't come into this building and leave our doubts at the door. Are you kidding me? What a terrible way to view church. I can't have any doubts and go to church. Well, what else am I gonna hide? <laughs> you bring those into This place. You bring those before God and you do that imperfectly for the rest of your life. But the rest of your life is working out salvation and you repent and you obey imperfectly the rest of your life. That's the life of John the Baptist, man. He did not value his life. That's the life of Christians in Afghanistan right now, even unto death. At the end of it all, Herod died. Nobody remembers. He died without the Lord. Nobody remembers. Kingdom fell. John died, and what is his legacy? 
Here's John's legacy. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in Christ shall all be made alive. What a legacy for everybody that trusts and believes in Jesus. He believed in Jesus, Jesus is hope, Jesus is life. Jesus is the one we hold on to, man, we cling to him. He is worth your whole life. And out of that life, out of that death, comes eternal life with him. You are going to die. It's inevitable. Herod or John. Man, trust Jesus today. Trust him. The only way you can have life, the only words of life, come from Jesus. I promise you, there's nowhere else to go. And in our struggle, in the reality of our life, in the reality of death and fear and anxiety, there's one hope, and that's, that's the Lord, Jesus. We're gonna take the table together, and I'm gonna invite you all um, to come down. If you're serving the elements, would you please come forward?